You've got to have a moan every once in a while, haven't you? You've got to get it off your chest. Moaning, after all, really, is a bit like our national sport, isn't it? It's something that we as a, a whole nation can get behind. We moan when it's too cold. We moan when it's too hot. We moan about the football. We moan about the government. We moan about work. We moan about school. We moan about other people moaning about those things. That's how endemic moaning is. We just moan about everything. If we could just get moaning to be an Olympic sport, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Man, we Brits would take home all the medals, wouldn't we? But we never win, don't we? We never win. Just something else to moan about. There you go. The passage we have in front of us this morning uh, shockingly shows us the Israelites moaning probably just three days after being rescued miraculously at the Red Sea. And we say that it's shocking, but we sort of get it, don't we, as believers? The New Testament uh, has us as this group more than anyone. It sort of compares us to this group. The Israelites in the wilderness are a picture of the pitfalls and problems of New Testament believers. We're told so in 1 Corinthians 10 and in Hebrews. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 10. Speaking of these Israelites. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So in other words, these words, these things that are happening, are there for our instruction, for you and for me, for us. God allowed this to happen so that we might learn something. Because that's the shocking thing, isn't it? Not that it happened to them, but actually this thing still happens to us, doesn't it? These things still go on. One day they were singing the song of Moses, and then three days later the song of misery, moaning and murmuring. They've gone from the Lord is my strength to the Lord is my sorrow in three days. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I can sing phrases loudly on a Sunday and meaningfully be singing to God on a Sunday. And by Wednesday, my heart can be in a very different place. That's just three days. That's all it takes. And I think as Christians, we can be some of the worst, actually, at moaning in these sort of areas, can't we? We even try sometimes and sanctify our moaning. Do you know what I mean by that? We sort of moan about society and it's not like it used to be. It's not as moral as it was when I was young. But I can still be moaning, can't it? We're still complaining. It just makes it sound like we're complaining about something that's a bit better. Don't non-believers moan in a similar way? My grandparents did. But the events in this chapter and the ones that follow are there to teach us to teach us about this issue. Now I want to say up front, having been in a number of churches, I don't think that moaning is a big issue in our church for us as a body at the moment. But A, it could be a problem for us as individuals, and B, it could be a problem for us in the future. Because while the Egyptian army proved no real danger to the Israelites, this issue of moaning actually risks the whole game, it risks everything. It's not going to be the Egyptians that stop them getting to the promised land. It's going to be their own ungrateful, grumbling hearts. So let's see how we got there in their case. Our first point. A difficult situation and a daft response. Let me just read to you verses 22 and 23 again. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. 
They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. The Israelites have run out of water. Now this is no small thing, is it? They're in the wilderness, the desert. You run out of water, you dehydrate, you die. The human body can only last about three days without water. And whilst they may have crossed the sea to get there, they can't drink seawater. That's not what they can do. They go into the wilderness of Shur, presumably led by the pillar of cloud and fire that leads them throughout the journey in the wilderness. We know that there are springs there because in Genesis, the wilderness of Shur was where Hagar ran away to and the angel of the Lord finds her by a spring. But all they find in the wilderness of Shur is a spring of bitter water. Now these springs are more common than you think in that part of the world. They're sort of warm springs with minerals and salts from fault lines that are in the area. They bubble up to the surface, but the water is undrinkable. And if you drank it, it would make you ill, which would put you in a worse situation than you were in before. So this is a crisis. They're three days' journey into a desert, and they have no drinkable water left. So what are they going to do? Well, verse 24... They moan. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now there are at least four words in Hebrew to put across the idea of complaining or moaning or grumbling. The word grumble here is a word that's translated elsewhere as to lodge or abide or to spend the night. So Ruth chapter 116 is probably quite familiar to some of us. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. It's that same word. And it's used of complaining with the idea of not budging, being awkward and obstinate. You can sort of imagine their faces, can't you, and the tone that goes with what they say. We're not happy, Moses. What are we going to drink? That's the way that they ask that question. It could have been like an honest question, couldn't it? It could have just been, you know, what are we going to drink? But it isn't. We're told they're grumbling. It's an accusation. It's an attack. They grumble against Moses. There's a target to their grumblings. They are not happy. And they know who they're not happy with. And this is going to be a repeated pattern by the Israelites. They will attack Moses again and again and again with their words and their plots. It's hard to believe that we're barely days away from when God used him to rescue them from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. And it's God that's actually rescued them, isn't it, and led them to the place that they're at. And yet now they're already fed up with Moses. By the next chapter they'll be telling him they wish they'd die in Egypt. And by the one after they'll be ready to kill Moses. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's unbelievable, isn't it? God has rescued them just days ago, and already they're moaning. They already think that God and Moses is somehow out to get them, or is unable to provide for them. They don't seem to believe that a God who moved the sea can provide water. Think about that for a second. It's as though they think he's got them halfway, half rescued, but can't keep them alive. But as we said last week, God does not half rescue people. But they seem to think that God has sort of brought them there to abandon them. That Moses has messed up. It's unbelievable. God has just done this. He's just rescued them. 
We say it's unbelievable, don't we? But it's totally believable, isn't it? This is exactly what we're like as human beings. It reminds me of the 90s uh, spoof comedy film Hot Shots Part Dirt, one of my favourite feel-good films when I'm feeling a bit low. There's a scene in it, though, where the hero rescues someone, Rowan Atkinson, from a terrible dungeon. And he has to carry him out of the dungeon into the safe place because his enemies have tied his shoelaces together so he can't walk. And on the journey out of the dungeon, all he does is complain. Wait, I can't go any further. Wait, I need a drink. There's a water fountain. Oh, it's not very cold, is it? Is it filtered? Oh, stop moving, don't jiggle me. That's what we're like, isn't it? He's being rescued, but he's complaining all the time. We're not thankful, we're mournfully moanful. And even in the Christian life, we can be tempted to focus on how much we're missing out on, rather than how many blessings we have. When things look like they've gone wrong, we tend not to spend our time constructively, we'll come to that in a minute, but we moan about our circumstances to others. Or if you're anything like me, you moan in your internal monologue in your own head. But moaning changes nothing. It's like worrying. It can't add an hour to your life. It can't make you a centimetre or an inch taller. And worse than worrying, it actually brings others down with you. Complaining, backbiting, grumbling. Are the sorts of things that actually tear relationships apart, aren't they? That tear churches apart. The Israelites, in a way, have a legitimate concern. There's no water. But instead of talking to Moses, they grumble against Moses. And this is where a crisis could turn and end up turning to be a full-on catastrophe. But thankfully, that's not what happens. Thanks to secondly, a death response. Not daft, a death response. And a better situation. Let me read to you verses 25 to 27. And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Moses' response in this is that he prays. There's a crisis, and he talks to God. And let's face it, it's a blatantly obvious thing to do as a believer, isn't it? And yet so often that's the thing that we miss, isn't it? I mean, if you looked at the sort of crisis management books, it, it wouldn't be there on the list, would it? If you sort of organise a meeting with the grumblers, tell the grumblers to sort out the problem themselves, preach a set of sermons on grumbling, Ironically, I think this is what a lot of ministers choose to do, and then end up grumbling about the grumblers in their sermons. Sort of irony. Number four, you introduce water rationing and a hosepipe ban. But Moses' response is to pray. And it mirrors what Israel did at the beginning of Exodus, crying out to the Lord. They did it, and now Moses is doing it. And like the Israelites from the beginning of Exodus, he is heard. He prays and he's heard. God provides him with an answer. The Lord shows him a log that he's to throw into the water. It says here log, but it's the word that's used for wood or timber, or more generally for a tree. 
In fact, it's the word that's used for the tree of life in Genesis 2. It's the word that's used when it talks about the curse of, of those who are hung on a tree in Deuteronomy 21. The solution that God provides is a tree. And this was a passage that a lot of early Christians loved. They saw this as an allusion to the cross, the tree on which Christ died. I don't think it's too much of a stretch for us to say that this is a picture of what Christ does for us. Especially since the next two incidents, the manna, the bread from heaven, and the water from the rock, we're told explicitly in the New Testament that they point us to Christ. We're told that Christ is the bread from heaven. We're told that Christ is the rock that quenched their thirst. Well, here Christ is the one who turns the bitter to sweet, who turns death to life. His cross is the tree, if you like, turns an instrument of death and makes it an instrument of life. He takes our bitterness and he turns it into sweetness. And the outcome here is that the bitter water turns sweet. In other words, the water is made drinkable. It's no longer a source of illness and possibly death, but a source of life. No wonder God calls himself in verse 26, the Lord your healer. Likewise, Christ in the New Testament refers to himself as a doctor, a physician. But there he makes clear that whilst he can cure physical illness, his point there is more that he's a doctor of our souls, the healer of our sin. The best physical healing healing can offer to us is that you live a little bit longer. But the kind of spiritual healing that Christ offers brings us eternal life. Have you been to that doctor to sort out your big problem, the problem of sin? He's willing to be able to operate, if you like, on our hearts and remove our sin. But are we willing to let it go? But God promises here that he will heal them. He promises not to bring on them the plagues or diseases that he brought on Egypt. But the promise is conditional. This is on the condition that, verse 26, they diligently listen to the voice of the Lord, do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. Now this is even before we get to Mount Sinai and they receive the Ten Commandments. God is laying out the deal for the nation, if you like. Keep my commandments and you'll be blessed. But there's an implicit flip side to it, isn't it? Isn't that? It's as though he's saying, if you don't do this, though, you'll end up like the Egyptians. I won't be your healer. I won't come to your rescue. (coughs) Now, we're going to meet a lot of talk like this in Exodus and the rest of the first five books of the New Testament. Blessings if you keep God's commands. Cursings if you disobey. But we do need to be careful, especially as we apply this to ourselves. Firstly, we need to remember that in the big picture, the Israelites have already been saved at this point. They've already been brought out of Egypt. They've already been uh, taken away from their life of slavery. So it's emphatically not, keep my rules and I'll save you. And yet so many people think that's what the message of Christianity is. That it's about rule keeping and just trying to be good. But the Bible teaches grace. That means that God comes to our rescue freely. Our part is not to keep commands, but to trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So it's not do this and be saved. That's not what he's saying. They've already been saved. But nor can we simply then transfer it to the Christian life either. 
You know, obey and everything will go well. Disobey and everything will go wrong. That certainly wasn't the way for Job, was it, in the Old Testament? He did everything right and things went terribly wrong. That wasn't the way for Jesus. Jesus obeyed perfectly and yet died on a cross. This wasn't the way for the Apostle Paul, who went around preaching the gospel and yet we we see a list of all his sufferings, all the things that he went through in his life. God is not a cosmic vending machine. You know, insert obedience, receive blessing, receive answered prayer. If you think about it in this story, despite their grumblings, God provides them water. Despite their moanings, he brings them to Elu in verse 27. He brings them to an oasis in the desert, a place of rest and comfort, with just the right number of springs and palm trees, one for every elder and every tribe. He does that despite of how they treat him. Why? Well, it is grace, yes, but it's also that they have a mediator. They have one who stands between them and God. One who prays to God for them. Without their mediator, they would have died of thirst in the desert, grumbling to their last breath. But they have a mediator who stands in their place. And finally, that's our situation. We have one who stands between us and God, who pleads for us before the Father. Without him, we would die in our own sin, grumbling at a God that we claim not to believe in until our last breath. So as much as this passage is an encouragement to pray rather than moan, it's also a reminder that there's one who prays for us, one who pleads for us, One who stands in our place. For them it was Moses. For us it's the Lord Jesus. Verse 25 tells us that the Lord was testing the Israelites here in the wilderness. Well if they were left to themselves, they would have failed, wouldn't they? But Jesus didn't fail. He passed. And he is the one talking to his father on our behalf. So it's right when we hit a crisis or just when we feel disgruntled to pray, that's right. But we do so remembering that one stands in our place. Think about it in this story. God could have told Moses, right, this is what you've got to do. Get the people to pray. When they pray, then I'll listen. But he doesn't, does he? Instead, he listens to one man, the mediator, the go-between. And we have such a better mediator than Moses... Now here's a spoiler alert for later on in the books. Moses will fail. Moses you'll find moaning. But in Christ we have one who will never fail us. One who stands before the Father pleading on our behalf. Moses could ever, only ever do this intermittently. You know, they, they have a crisis, he goes and prays. They have a crisis, he goes and prays. And in the end, Moses will die in the wilderness like the rest of them. But Christ, our mediator, is risen. He ever lives to plead for us, never to die again. And he's standing there in our place, standing before the Father for us. So that when we pray, we are heard. When we hit a crisis, we're not alone. And we don't need to moan. Because we have a mediator who cares, who is looking out for us. And do you see how that's bigger than don't moan pray? Though that's helpful. It's about remembering our mediator when we think that God is somehow giving us a raw deal. 
or messing with us or out to get us in some way. When we don't seem to have what we need or what we want, we've all been there, haven't we? The temptation is to moan. But instead, we need to remember Christ, our mediator, stood before the Father pleading for us, one who shed his own blood for us on the tree. How will he not bring us sweetness out of bitterness? How will he not work for our good when it is Christ, his righteous Son, who is praying for us, who is pleading for us? We believe in a God, don't we, who directs our very circumstances. He brought the Israelites to Mara on purpose. He has brought us to where we are on purpose. Do you not think maybe he's got something to teach us in those sorts of situations? Do you not think he wants us to trust him? C.H. Spurgeon, the Baptist minister back in Victorian times, said that the wilderness was the children of Israel's university. It's where they went to learn all their lessons before they went into the promised land. And we as believers, well, we are to learn from where they went wrong. We're to read them like a textbook of what not to do. God has put us where we are on purpose and given us what we've got for a reason and not got for a reason. That was true for them and it's true for us. Even the very society that we live in, God has put us here. God has brought us to this place at this time for a reason. He hasn't put us in a time of great revival in our nation. He hasn't put us in a place in the world where it's easy to share the gospel. He's brought us to Mara. But that doesn't mean that God can't make the bitter sweet. So if moaning is our national sport, then this is an area where we need to be countercultural. Christians should be those weirdos who don't moan. We should be champions, not rather than being champions at complaining, or winners at whining, or medal winners at murmuring. We need to be title winners at trust. Prize winners of prayer, record breakers of remembering Christ. So if you're fearing that you'll thirst or hunger, if you're worried that you won't make it through, that you don't have what you need, if you're tempted to murmur and moan, come to Christ. Remember him. He's always there, he's always pleading for us. Get it off your chest to him, rather than moaning and murmuring to other people. Father God, we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is evidence, if we needed any, that you are for us, not against us. Father, help us when we're tempted to, uh, to think about our situation and moan. Father, help us to remember that you've put us in our situation and you want us to learn, Father, you've got something to teach us. Father, help us to see that, help us to trust you with the circumstances of our lives and the place where you've put us. And Father, pray that we talk to you rather than moan to each other. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.